Well, all right. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Acts chapter 10, to uh, the passage that was just read for us a moment ago in Acts chapter 10. And as you're kind of finding your way to that portion of the Bible, let me ask this question of you to consider. What difference does the gospel make in how you view people different from yourself? What difference does the gospel make in how you view people who are not like you? Maybe they are of a different race. Maybe they come from a different cultural background. Maybe they are a member of a different economic class. Maybe they're a member of a different political party or whatever the case may be. What difference does the gospel make in how you view people who are different from yourself? You know, Gandhi wrote a biography back in the day and And in his autobiography, he describes a negative experience he had one time with a church in England. In his younger days, he studied in England, and while he was there, he was introduced to the Gospels, the story of Jesus. And he began to read through the Gospels, and as he read through the Gospels, he began to, he found himself attracted to Jesus. And he believed that the teachings of Jesus and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that is the Gospel, it it may contain the power needed to kind of dismantle the caste system that was sullying life for so many in his home country of India. And so he had these questions and these curiosities kind of kicked up in his heart. So one day he visited a church to hopefully engage a minister with his questions. He wanted to learn more about Jesus and he wanted to had some doctrinal questions that he wanted to ask. And unfortunately, after he arrived at the church, there were a couple of ushers who when they looked at him, They refused to seat him, saying instead that he needed to go and worship with members of his own kind. Well, you can imagine what this would do to a guy who has that experience in a church. And so he left that place with a lot of negative emotions. He left that place never to return. And and in his autobiography, he would actually write this, making this statement. He said, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. In other words, if the gospel doesn't make a difference in how we view people who are different from us, then what's the point in the gospel? He says, if Christians are ranking and classifying others based on some external superficial metric, then what difference is the gospel really making in our lives in a practical, relevant, real-time sort of way. And so he left the church that day never to return. Well, if you've been journeying with us over the past few weeks, you know that we are in a new series titled Gospel Saturated. And the desire behind this series is to want to kind of put some flesh to our desire of seeing lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. We desire to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships, so we're taking some time to kind of flesh out what that means, to put some color to that desire, so we might see practically and tangibly what do gospel-saturated relationships look like. And what I want us to think about this afternoon is how gospel-saturated relationships are driven by a whole new perspective on people. And I'm convinced that what Gandhi experienced that day in a church in England, it wasn't gospel-saturated Christianity. What he experienced in that moment was more of a dehydrated Christianity. 
A Christianity that didn't have the the juice of the gospel flowing through it. A Christianity that hadn't been saturated in the realities of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. No, what he experienced in that moment wasn't gospel-saturated Christianity. It was a version of Christianity that had been dehydrated. You see, the more you and I take the gospel into our lives... And the more thoroughly we think the gospel through and begin to faithfully turn the gospel out, what that's going to do is that's going to change our perspective on people who are not like us. When we're taking the gospel in, thinking it through, and turning it out, we are not going to find ourselves standing above anyone. But at the same time, we're not going to find ourselves standing below anyone, assuming an inferior posture either. And at the same time, we're not going to find ourselves standing removed from relationships with people who are distant, different from us. Instead, as we are taking the gospel in deeply and as we are thinking it through thoroughly and we are turning the gospel out, what's going to happen is we're going to find ourselves standing shoulder to shoulder with human beings created in the image of God, finding common ground with those around us and seeing life flourish in relationships that from our perspective, we're being saturated and driven and motivated by the gospel of Jesus. And so we want to consider that this afternoon as we step into today's passage found in Acts chapter 10. The book of Acts, if you're unfamiliar with this book in the Bible, this is the book that tells the story of the first generation of Christians. What was life like in the world after Jesus resurrected and returned to heaven? What did his disciples then do? What, how do they go about their days? How do they live their lives? And the book of Acts is telling that story. And as you think about kind of the historical developments of Christianity in the world, understand that the gospel first took root in the hearts of Jewish men and women. The first Christians were ethnically Jewish. The first Christians were religiously Jewish. The first Christians were devout in their Jewish faith and heritage. And so the first Christians were those where or the gospel first took root in the hearts of men and women who were drawn from a Jewish background. And this means there were some challenges that got kicked up in their hearts as they began to follow Jesus and as they thought about doing the things that Jesus had told them to do. Because these same Jewish men and women were heirs of a rather strong tradition of prejudice. You see, the Jewish mentality in the first century did not look with favor upon non-Jewish people. In fact, when you're reading through the Gospels and you're reading through the book of Acts, you read a word like Gentile, that was how uh, Jewish people referred to non-Jewish men and women, people like us. We are the Gentiles. And lurking in the hearts of the first generation of Christians was a strong tradition of prejudice, a strong tradition of resistance to engaging in meaningful relationships with those who were not Jewish. And this tradition, it kind of, it traces itself back far in the history of God's people in the world. You go back into the Old Testament, you see this prejudice at play in some of the more influential characters in the Old Testament. I'll give you just one example. Consider the story of Jonah. You know Jonah's story. Jonah was a man whom God called to take his word to the Ninevite people a people that the Jews were afraid of and intimidated by, a people that the Jews considered to be unclean and immoral. In fact, their reputation in the world was terrible, and yet God told Jonah to go bring his word to this people. And at first, this prejudice kind of aroused 
uh, raised up in Jonah's life, and so he disobeyed God's word. He went in the exact opposite of where God was telling him to do. He did not want to go to the Ninevite people. But Jonah found he could not escape God's desire to reach the Ninevites, and so God intervened, flipped the script on Jonah's journey. Eventually, Jonah found himself hanging out with the Ninevite people, preaching a message of repentance. And whenever he was doing that, he assumed that there's no way these types of people would respond positively to God's revelation. They're not going to respond positively to God's word. But then, to his surprise, the people of Nineveh repented. And they started changing their ways in response to what the message Jonah was delivering to them. And then when Jonah saw that God would actually honor his word and honor the repentance of the Ninevite people, that angered him. And he got mad at God for sparing this nation, these unclean people. And what's interesting, when you consider kind of Jonah's heart, even at the end of his story, there's not much transformation there. He's still kind of holding on to some of those prejudices against the Ninevite people. He's, he's kind of a bitter dude at the end of that book. But when you step into the Gospels, it's interesting that one of the characters in today's story, the disciple named Peter, do you understand what his full name is? When we first meet Peter in the Gospels, his name is Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. And what you're going to find as you study Peter's story closely is that there's a lot of similarities between him and the prophet Jonah. And that similar type of prejudice that, that characterized Jonah's life was something that God had to root out of Peter's life as he grew in his faith. So there was a strong tradition of of prejudice that was present in the lives and the hearts of the first generation of Christians. And it all kind of comes out of this tradition. And so you have this group of men and women who've received the gospel, they're believing the gospel, and these are the ones that Jesus is now depending upon to go into the world and to do what? To go into the world and to make disciples of all nations. That these people were called and commissioned by God to cross cultures, to engage people who are not like them, and to step into meaningful relationships where discipleship could happen. This is one of the last things that Jesus would tell this group of disciples. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he clarifies, he said, look, you guys are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this group... It's supposed to go to all the peoples of the earth. And in order for that to happen, some things needed to change in their hearts, right? And it seems as though that message of going into all nations and engaging in relationships with people who are different from them, it took a while for that message to sink in, which is why about six to ten years after Jesus left the earth, you find the Christian movement was still predominantly Jewish. They hadn't made a lot of headway. The gospel wasn't crossing cultures. The gospel wasn't going into different types of people in the world. And it took this event in Acts chapter 10 where God kind of steps in and he begins to shake things up to expose this dynamic and to compel Peter to change his ways. So that the church from this point forward would be the church going after the nations, going after all the peoples in the world. What you find as you study through the book of Acts is that the biggest threat to the advancement of the gospel is not an understatement to say. It's not an understatement to say that the biggest threat to the advancement of the gospel in the first century was racial and religious prejudice. And it's not an overstatement to say today that one of the biggest threats to the advancement of the gospel is Racial and religious prejudice that continues to lurk within the heart of God's people. 
a racial and religious prejudice that needs to be eradicated, needs to be put to death, and the character of Christ needs to be put on. It's not an understatement to say that the biggest threat to the advancement of the gospel today is this same type of heart, this same type of dynamic. There is a prejudice, if we're all honest, there is a prejudice at, on some level in our hearts that causes us to wall ourselves off from people who are not exactly like us. And so we hold people at arm's length, we stand in a superior position over people who are not like us, or there's a flip side of that where we kind of assume an inferior posture towards those who are not like us. And we're not engaging in the meaningful relationships that we're called to engage in because our perspective hasn't been saturated with the gospel. And so it's with that in mind that I want to step into the story in Acts chapter 10. Because this story in Acts chapter 10 is a story of God establishing a gospel-saturated relationship between two men who, were, who couldn't have been any more different. He's taking a Gentile soldier named Cornelius and he's putting him in relationship with a Jewish apostle named Peter. He's bringing these two men together, and he's establishing a gospel-saturated relationship, and he's doing so by changing their perspective, by helping Peter in particular to see the world differently, to see other people differently. And so you step into Acts chapter 10, and a portion of it was read a moment ago, and I was laughing because it was a long text, and somebody mentioned, man, this is a long passage to read publicly, and I, and I said, well, it could have been a lot longer because there's a lot more to the story. This story runs from chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 10, all the way through about halfway through chapter 11. So a lot more could have been read. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to kind of survey this entire story. We're going to look at the, the story that can be breaking, broken up in about five scenes. And we're going to summarize different scenes of this story as we work our way to the end. And I'm basically just going to give you five takeaways, five challenges in light of what goes down in the relationship between Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Things that will help us be more ready to engage in relationships with people who are different from us. So we're going to summarize most of these five scenes. The first scene is found in verses 1 through 8, and it's a scene that takes place in Cornelius' house. That's the opening moment where we're introduced to a guy who is described positively. He's devout, he's religious, he's spiritual, he prays, he gives, he has a good reputation, and he's the leader. He's a member of, of uh, the Roman army, and he has a respectable position in their ranks. He's a good guy, he's a strong leader, and as he goes and he's praying about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and all of a sudden he has a vision. God speaks to him in a vision, and his vision is... It, what God says to him in that vision is quite interesting. So essentially, although Cornelius is a man who is pious, he's devout, and he prays, he's also a man who doesn't yet know Jesus. Nobody's told him about the Christ. Nobody's told him about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So although he's interested in the things of God, and he's spiritual, and he's devout, there's still a lot more for him to learn. There's still a lot more for him to hear. And so in the vision, he is told by an angel of God, I want you to send, I want you to send for a guy named Peter and bring him to your house. So God's saying, look, I have a guy named Peter that I want you to meet. I want you to step into a relationship with. Now think about this with me. Cornelius is a man who pray, he, he prays. He's religious. He's devout. He gives. Yet in this vision, God still tells him, look, there's somebody I need you to meet because, because you, you don't yet know Jesus. You, you don't know much about the Christ. Now, the angel of God in that vision, you would think, was perfectly capable of telling Cornelius who Jesus was, right? 
Couldn't he have told and explained to him the way of salvation? But he didn't do it, did he? He didn't do it. Instead, he says, I want you to meet my friend Peter. Why is that? Well, it's because God desires to establish gospel-saturated relationships um, between his people. And there are some things that God ordinarily does through people. And one of those things is introducing men and women to Jesus. That the ordinary way that God reaches people is through people. Why? Because Jesus isn't simply about reconciling us to our God. He's also about reconciling us to one another. And so he wants this Gentile soldier to connect with this Jewish apostle because God is making something beautiful in the world called the church. And the church is going to be a multi-ethnic community comprised of people from all stripes in the world. They're going to come together finding unity and harmony in Christ. God is setting that up. So the angel of God does not tell Cornelius the story of Jesus. He says, I'm going to lead you to a guy named Peter. And Peter is going to tell you the story of Jesus. So another dynamic of this, not only does God ordinarily reach people through people, it also reminds us that conversion is always conversion into community. That your conversion isn't simply a conversion to Christ, it is a conversion to the church. So that all of a sudden the church becomes your people. And the people in the church are, and you become their people. That's what conversion is all about. You see this also in Acts chapter 9. You have a moment where Saul is is writing, he's en route to persecute the church, and then Jesus shows up, knocks him off the church, he shines light in his eyes, he goes blind, and he begins to tell Saul, who we now know as Paul, what to do. And, and the first thing he tells Paul to do, he says, I want you to go and connect with another disciple. I want you to go meet with him. Why is that? Because God is about relationships. Not just our individual relationship with God, but the harmonious relationship we are to enjoy with each other. Conversion to Christianity is always a conversion into community. That's where discipleship takes place. That's where you actually grow in your faith. Nobody grows in their faith by living an isolated life. Nobody grows in their faith by living a life surrounded by people who are just like them. If we really want to grow in our faith, we have to immerse ourselves in a diversity of relationships and that, that those relationships are to be most accessible in the church. And so here, Jesus, or this angel of God, tells Cornelius, I want you to connect with my friend Peter. And meanwhile, Peter is 30 miles away. And he's kind of doing his thing. We're told in verse 9, the next day as they were traveling, that is the people that Cornelius dispatched to go retrieve Peter, said Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon, and he became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were pray preparing something, he fell into a trance. He too had a vision. And notice the vision, verse 11. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and birds of the sky, and a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But then Peter kind of responds in typical Peter fashion. Peter had a tendency to always object to words he would hear from the Lord. You kind of see this all the time in the Gospels where Jesus would say, okay, I want this to happen. And Peter protests. Peter resists. He's a lot like Jonah in that regard. So he begins to argue with the Lord about this vision, saying, no, Lord, for I've never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. So he protests, he gives an excuse, I, I don't want to do this, I've never done that, I'm a, I'm a Jewish man, and as a Jewish man, I'm not supposed to eat those kinds of food. But then notice what happens in verse 15. 
Again, the second time, the voice said to him, what God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened three times, and suddenly the object was taken up into heaven. So not only, so, so on one hand, Peter has a tendency to argue and to debate with the Lord, much like many of us do when we are reading through the scriptures and we discover something that Jesus wants us to change, and we discover something that Jesus wants us to do. What's our initial reaction so often? Our initial reaction is to protest, is to argue. But just like Peter, we lose those arguments, right? God's going to beat us every time. We try to debate him, we're going to lose. We're not that smart. So we may argue and wrestle. We might as well just save ourselves some time and some heartache by submitting to whatever it is God is teaching us and speaking to us. And so Peter's going to learn this, which is why the, the voice from heaven would speak to him multiple times, three times in fact, to emphasize, look, I want you to take and eat. So what's going on here? Well, perhaps one of the most... the The biggest practical barrier to Peter befriending a Gentile was his diet. You see, as a Jewish man, he was committed to eating certain kinds of food and not eating other kinds of food. And so a practical barrier to the advancement of the gospel in the world in the first century was food. It was, well, if I go into a Gentile's home and they put something unclean before me, what am I supposed to do with that? And so here the Lord is is reminding Peter that a new day has dawned in the world. That in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that practical barrier has been absolved. It has been removed. That Jesus fulfilled the law for us, including the ceremonial aspects of the law, the dietary restrictions of the law that would prohibit Jewish men and women from engaging in meaningful relationships with non-Jewish people. That has been absolved. That has been taken care of. God is opening up a pathway for Peter and other people like him to cross cultures and to take the gospel to the nations. Essentially, the Lord is saying to Peter, look, you have no excuse. You, have, you can't even appeal to my law as an excuse for not loving another person. You cannot appeal to my law as an excuse not to cross cultures and to engage people who are not just like you. There's no excuse. The gospel has liberated us in this regard so that we are free to go and free to love, free not to be offended, free not to be offensive. This is the dynamic of the gospel that that is giving shape to Peter's perspective in this encounter. And and really, it shouldn't have been all that surprising to Peter because Peter hung out with Jesus. And and, uh, Jesus would teach on this. Jesus would tell Peter that a new day has come with him. And he would tell Peter that things are beginning to change with his arrival in the world. It's interesting. When you read, read the Gospel of Mark, understand that that Gospel was written by a guy who was discipled by Peter. And it means that when Mark's writing his Gospel, he's writing his Gospel conveying Peter's perspective. That's why there's so much emphasis on Peter in that Gospel. And it's interesting that in Mark chapter 7, there's a moment where Jesus communicates, where we are told that this new day has come, and we don't have to worry about the difference between clean and unclean foods anymore. Mark chapter 7, I'll read a portion of it to you. Verse 18, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he asks, are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. But then here's this parenthesis, which is Mark's comment on that. Saying, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. 
Jesus is removing anything that our sinful heart would want to cling to as an excuse from withholding our fellowship with someone who is not like us. That's what's going on when the food laws change with the coming of Jesus. And he begins to tell people, disciples, or the first century church, look, you really can eat anything. Just thank God for it, eat it, enjoy it, and love people. He's saying, I don't want your sinful heart to latch on to an excuse for not engaging in meaningful relationships with people who are not like you. This is what's going on in this story in Acts chapter 10 is this voice from heaven is clarifying this for Peter because Peter's really going to understand the more he thinks about the vision and he considers this new day that Jesus has ushered in, he's going to realize that the vision ultimately wasn't about food. The vision was ultimately about people. God was trying to change his perspective so that he might see people differently and he might see his responsibility to other people differently. So let me ask you, what excuse do you tend to give for not loving other people? What excuse do you sometimes give for not showing hospitality to someone who's not like you? What excuse do you sometimes give for not engaging in gospel ministry that not only shares the gospel but shows the gospel? Well, what excuses do you tend to give for not engaging in relationships with people who are not like you? This story is designed to tell us we have no excuse. If Peter can't use food laws, you can't use anything either. We have no excuse for not engaging in relationships with people who are not like us. And so we're told in verse 17 that Peter began to think through uh, the vision, uh, what he had seen and what it might mean. And, And then all of a sudden the men that were sent by Cornelius shows up at his home and they cry out from outside. They say, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. Verse 19, while Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them with no doubts at all. Don't hesitate. They're they're Gentiles. Don't let that slow you down. They're different from you. Don't let that stop you. Don't hesitate because I have sent them. That's what the Spirit is speaking. The Spirit's arranging their relationship. Then in verse 21, then Peter went down to the men and said, here I am, the one you're looking for. What's your reason for being here. And they begin to explain. And then look at verse 23. Peter then invited them in and gave them lodging. Don't you love that? Peter's perspective is changing. So he opens up his gates and he draws these Gentiles in and he gives them lodging. He shows them hospitality. He sits down and eats with people who are not like him. He sits down and engages in people that he has a tradition of prejudice against. It's a remarkable change in perspective. And so they come in, and then in the next scene, scene three, Peter and Cornelius meet. This begins to take place in verse 23. Verse 23, the next day he got up and set out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went with him, meaning they're going to to Cornelius' house. The following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, get this, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshiped him. So Cornelius' first impression of Jesus, uh, not of Jesus, of Peter, was to fall down and worship him. Now, why do you think he would do that? Could it be Cornelius is processing this vision he received from the Lord to go and meet Peter? Maybe he's assuming that Peter's going to be a guy who's better than him or bigger than him or superior to him. To him. After all, he's the one the angel told him to go talk to. So maybe he thinks Peter's a holy man. Maybe he thinks Peter's a divine man. Maybe he thinks he himself is inferior to this Jewish apostle that he's been told by an angel to go and meet. 
But what does this guy do in response? What does Peter do in response? He sees him bowing down in this submissive, submissive posture, worshiping him, and Peter, Peter responds with such humility. He responds with gospel-saturated perspective in verse 26. Peter lifted the guy up and he says to him, Stand up, I myself am also a man. Stand up, I'm not over you. Stand up, you're not beneath me. Stand up, look me in the eyes. I myself am also a man. This is humility, this is gospel-saturated perspective. This is Peter saying, I'm not standing over you. You're not standing under me. We're going to stand in the solidarity of our shared humanity. We've both been created by God. We are both accountable to God. We are both in need of the Savior sent from God. We share this in common. So don't stand sit under me. Don't get over me. Just stand right next to me so we can look at each other and talk about Jesus. It's humility. It's a gospel-saturated perspective. No hesitation. Peter responds in that moment. But then you go on in verse 28. Peter says to him, you know it's forbidden for, or he goes in and he sees a large crowd of, of Gentile people gathered there that Cornelius had rallied together. Verse 28, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. God is changing my perspective. That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. So may I ask why you sent for me? Peter's saying, look, God has told me to come, so I'm here. And when he gets there, he finds a crowd of Gentiles eager to hear what Peter's there to tell them. And then what does Peter do next? Well, Peter begins to saturate those relationships with the gospel. He opens his mouth and he begins to tell the story of Jesus. I love this about Peter. He didn't stand up and start talking about the ways in which they were different. He started talking about the main thing they had in common. He started telling the story of Jesus. If you want to know what brings different people together in fellowship, what brings different people together in real meaningful relationships, it isn't by fleshing out what makes us different and measuring those against each other. It's when we focus on what we share in common. And what we share in common is our need for Jesus. And we share in common the fact that God sent Jesus. And he sent Jesus not for the Jewish people. He sent Jesus for all the peoples in the world. This is the first thing that Peter confirms in verse 34. When he opens his mouth and he begins to speak, what does he say? He says, now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. He's starting to get the point of his own salvation. He's starting to get the point of Israel's calling back in the Old Testament. He's saying, now I'm getting that God doesn't show favoritism. Why is that? You might think, well, well, didn't God call Israel? Aren't, isn't Israel God's chosen people in the world? And, and the answer to those questions is yes. God did call Israel out of all the other nations in the world. He chose Israel. But why did he choose Israel? Why did he call them? Was that favoritism? No, it wasn't favoritism because you've got to think about why God called Israel. He chose Israel because he was going after all nations. Everything he was going to communicate to Israel was supposed to be received by them and then relayed to all the peoples in the world. God wasn't showing favoritism by choosing Israel. He chose Israel because he was en route to the nations. He was en route to all the peoples in the world. You might put it this way. In the Old Testament, Israel is described as, as 
they they had the responsibility of being a light unto all the nations. They didn't do a very good job. Their light didn't shine very bright. They weren't very receptive to Gentile peoples. They didn't relay God's revelation very faithfully. And so when Jesus steps onto the scene in the Gospels, what is he saying? He steps onto the scene and he's essentially saying, I am the true Israel. I am here to do what Israel failed to do. I am the light of the world. And so God's revelation is now going to shine through my person. It's going to shine through my work. And it's going to shine into the dark crevices of all the people groups on the planet. Jesus is doing what Israel failed to do. Peter's starting to connect the dots. And he's saying, look, God does not show favoritism. Everything that he's done in me and my salvation, he's done so that I might bring that message and bring that salvation to other people who are not like me. In other words, as a Christian, your life, your life is not to be lived as a spiritual cul-de-sac in a suburb. You are not the end of God's activities. God does not show favoritism in that regard. You are the means. When God saves you, he saves you to send you. When God blesses you, he blesses you to bless others. Anytime you receive blessing, anytime you receive something like the favor of God in your life, it's never intended to stick with you or to stay with you. It is to flow through you. So you're not a spiritual cul-de-sac in a suburb. Your life is to be a major intersection where you are crossing paths with all types of people in the world and you are asking the question, God, what are you doing in me and how can it be used to benefit and to bless those around me, including those who are not like me? This is what Peter's starting to connect when he says God shows no favoritism because he's realizing that that God's grace in his life was designed to flow through his life, crossing cultures, tearing down barriers and building relationships with people who are different from himself. So after acknowledging that in verse 34, he would go on and then essentially he just tells the story of Jesus. And he tells the story of Jesus in such a simple way, laying out the gospel, outlining the gospel. He starts in verse 36 by reminding us that Jesus is the Lord of all. That's a big statement for him to make in a room full of Gentiles. He's saying, look, Jesus is Lord of all. That, that, that includes you and, and your people groups and All the places you come from, Jesus is Lord of all. He's kind of making that clear. He's saying every people on the planet has a responsibility to Jesus. Every people group on the planet, Jesus is Lord of all. That's a remarkable statement. But then he moves from after acknowledging that, he he begins to talk about the life of Jesus. And he says, he says, you know, the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. So he talks about the life of Jesus. That's a big piece of the gospel. But then he moves from the life of Jesus to the death of Jesus. Verse 39. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem. And yet they killed him. Crucifixion. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. So he moves from life, he moves from the fact that Jesus is Lord to the life he lived to the death he died. Then verse 40, he brings up the resurrection. He's laying out the gospel. Verse 40, God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So he moves to the resurrection of Jesus, but he doesn't stop there because there's another important element to the gospel that we have to keep in mind, and that is the fact that this Jesus is going to return. He's coming back. This is where he goes next. 
It says that Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Do you hear the gospel? Do you hear the flow, the outline of the gospel? Jesus is Lord of all. He came and lived the life that you and I could not live. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. He rose from the grave, conquering sin, conquering Satan, conquering death. And one day he will return. And when he returns, he's going to judge the living and the dead. Every people group on the planet is ultimately accountable to Jesus. This is what's being declared by Peter in this story. But then you jump into verse 43. He goes one step further. He says, all the prophets testify about him, that is about about Jesus, that through his name, everyone, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. He's saying salvation is available to every type of person on the planet. Everyone who believes in Jesus can find forgiveness for their sins. So that when Jesus returns to judge in the living and the dead, we don't have to be afraid. We can, our sins can be forgiven. We, our lives can be rescued and redeemed. This is true for every, you, you can't say, well, I can't believe in Jesus because my family's never believed in Jesus. I can't believe in Jesus because my culture has never believed in Jesus. You can't disqualify yourself from his forgiveness because of who Jesus is as the Lord of all who lived and died and rose again and who will one day return. The message of forgiveness is available to every type of person on the planet. Don't exclude yourself. Don't exclude yourself by saying, well, that's just not, that's not my people. Or that's not where I come from. Don't exclude yourself. One of the challenges I think that we're facing in the church today in our country, or in this country, and in this context, the challenge we're facing today is we, we're, we're being tempted to put ourselves in the same position as the first century Jewish Christian church. Meaning we're, we, we are tempted to, to live and act as though Jesus is simply the savior of middle, upper middle class white people. Just as the first century Jewish church thought perhaps that Jesus was simply the Jewish Messiah, not the Messiah of all types of people. We're facing a temptation today to restrict the salvation that Jesus offers to a particular demographic, to a particular ethnicity. And the story found in Acts chapter 10 is designed to blow all of that out of the water, saying don't lose sight of who Jesus is and what Jesus lived, died, and rose from the grave for. Christianity is not a white religion. Christianity is not a Western religion. Christianity is a global faith planned and executed by the God of the universe so that sinners like you and I might find our sins forgiven and our relationship with God restored. And when we step into that dynamic, we find ourselves with the mechanism to step into relationships with each other so that suddenly the church becomes a counterculture reflecting to the, to, to the watching world that Jesus does indeed make life different. He changes our perspective and how we view people who are not like us. He changes our perspective and how we, are, we go about relating to people who aren't like us in this world. Jesus changes everything. This is the message that Peter's delivering. This is the message that needs to sink deeply into our souls. But as he delivered this message, some things go down. And as he's speaking it, the Holy Spirit comes down and 
And these Gentiles are filled up with the Holy Spirit. They experience a Gentile Pentecost, so to speak, very similar to what goes down in Acts chapter 2. It is now happening in a Gentile context, saying, look, the gospel of Jesus is for all the peoples in the world. And you would think that that would be good news for everyone to rejoice in. But as you move the story into Acts chapter 11, Peter returns to Jerusalem and the circumcision party, that is Jewish Christians who were comprising the church there, when they heard about Peter doing what he did there, they got mad. It says in verse 2, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized Peter, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And so he took heat. He took heat. And so what did he do in response? He began to advocate. In the face of the heat that was being thrown at him, Peter begins to advocate for the Gentiles' inclusion in the church. So he begins to explain all that went down. Then you drop down to verse 15. He says, and as I begin to speak, that is, as he was speaking to the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave, uh, gave to us when we believed in the Lord, how could I possibly hinder God? How can I stand in God's way? And when everybody heard this line of thinking as he's thinking the gospel through and turning it out in that moment, they hear this and they become silent and they started glorifying God, saying, so then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. And Peter advocates for the Gentiles' equal inclusion in the life of the church, convincing the Jewish people in that moment that when these Christians step into the community, they should not be viewed as second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, but as fully grafted, fully grafted members of God's egalitarian society called his kingdom in the world. And so you have this change, all this remarkable dynamic where Peter advocates for the Gentiles. I love how John Piper kind of summarizes this story in a, in a memorable way, and I want to share his kind of summary statement on this story. In light of it, he says, let us wash our minds and our mouths of all racial slurs and ethnic put-downs and be done with all alienating behaviors. And let's be the good Samaritan for some ethnic outcast. And let's be the Christ for some untouchable leper. And let's be the Peter for some waiting Cornelius. Let's be the Peter for some waiting Cornelius. What does that mean? Here's five takeaways. Five takeaways real quick on how you can be the Peter to some waiting Cornelius, you can engage in relationships with people who are not like you. First takeaway is this. Show no hesitation when befriending people who are not like you. Don't hesitate to build relationships with people who are not like you. Show no hesitation. Pay attention to the providence of God in your life. Do you see God's providence all over this story where he's arranging the meeting between Cornelius and Peter? He's showing up in visions in different people in different places to bring them together. He's at work, and I assure you, God is at work in your life too. And he's providentially arranging encounters between you and other people who are not like you. Pay attention to the providence of God. And when you have an opportunity to step into a friendship with someone who's not like you, don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. So show no hesitation when befriending someone who is not like you. Second, show hospitality to people who are different from you. As you step into those relationships and you meet people who are different from you, show hospitality. Invite them to share your dinner table. Invite them into your world. And I would go one step further. Not only do you want to extend invitations showing hospitality to people who are different from you, I would encourage you to accept invitations. 
for you to go into other people's world and you to step into other, for you to cross cultures and to meet people on their own turf the way Jesus met us in this world. So we want to be hospitable people. We want to show hospitality to people who are not like us. Let me ask you, when's the last time you shared a meal with someone who didn't share your skin color? When's the last time you shared a meal with someone who did not share your lifestyle? When's the last time you shared a meal with someone who did not share your hobbies and your interests? When's the last time you shared a meal with someone who wasn't like you? We want to show hospitality to people who are different from us. Third, we want to show humility towards those who are different from us. We want to show humility towards those around us. Meaning when we step into relationships with people, we're praying, God, would you eradicate any feeling in my heart that that wants to deceive me into thinking that I am above them? At the same time, we want to step into those relationships praying, God, would you eradicate anything in my heart that would cause me to feel inferior to another human being? Would you give me a humility that can recognize my place in the world as, as a human being created in your image? Help me to live in light of my dignity as your creature and help me to bestow that same dignity upon people around me. That's what humility does. Humility says, I'm not over you, I'm not beneath you, but I'm right here with you. That's how humble people live. So we want to show humility as we relate to people who are different from us. Fourth, we want to share the gospel with people who are different from us. We want to share the gospel with people who are different from us. Don't buy the lie into thinking that the gospel is just for Americans. Don't buy the lie of thinking the gospel is just for the middle class. Don't buy the lie of thinking the gospel is just for this type of person or that type of person. The gospel is for all types of people. And if you have received the gospel, you have received it with God's intention of you relaying that gospel showing it to people in your life, sharing it with people in your life. We want to share the gospel with people who are different from us. And then lastly, lastly, we want to show up for those who need our advocacy. We want to show up for those who need our advocacy in the church. We want to show up for those who need our advocacy in the world in which we live. If we're going to have a gospel-saturated perspective on all types of people in the world, and that means we're going to extend, we're going to give voice to the voiceless, we're going to go to the defense of the defenseless, we're going to show up for those who need our advocacy. So if you're an ethnic majority, you need to consider the opportunity you have to give voice to those who, whose voice isn't quite as loud as yours can be in a culture like ours. And we need to show up for those who need our advocacy. We need to speak up on those who are being oppressed and mistreated. We need to speak up on those who are being ostracized in society or even exiled in from the church we want to show up for people who need our advocacy this is what gospel saturated perspective is all about this is how we start nurturing gospel saturated gospel saturated relationships in our life in our church and all throughout this city is by not hesitating showing hospitality living humbly sharing the gospel and then showing up for people who need us Showing up for people who need us. And of course, it doesn't take too big of a leap to see how Jesus showed no hesitation when he stepped into relationship with us. Nothing slowed him down. Nothing stopped him from saving us. It's not hard to see how Jesus has shown us hospitality by inviting us into relationship with with the Father, welcoming, welcoming us into him in that way. It's not hard for us to see how Jesus humbled himself towards us by stepping into our shoes and living the life that we could not live only to die on the cross in our place. It's not hard to 
to hear Jesus proclaiming the gospel of his kingdom to all types of people all throughout the gospels. And it's not hard to hear Jesus showing up for those who needed his advocacy. It's interesting in 1 John chapter 1, Jesus is defined or described as our advocate. Meaning we don't have a voice before the holy God of the universe. Our sin kind of leaves us voiceless. We need an advocate. We need a defender. And so 1 John chapter 1 says Jesus steps into the gap and he becomes our advocate. And he shows up for people who need it desperately. This is what the Savior has done for us. And as we turn this gospel out in our life and in our church, we begin to do similar things in our relationships with people who are different from us in the world that is as we anticipate the world that is to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to consider these truths? Holy Spirit, would you help us to process them? Would you help us to apply them? God, would you enlarge the circle of our lives so that we might be found in gospel-saturated relationships with people who are not like us? God, would you give us grace to revel in the beauty of unity in the midst of diversity? Would you give us grace to recognize the beauty surrounding us in your creation as we consider people different from us who have been created in your image and whom you sent your son Jesus into the world to, to save? I pray, God, that you would give us grace to find our place in the rhythm of things and that we would be the church that you desire us to be, who's living our lives by a gospel-saturated perspective, all by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.